Welcome to Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting July 19th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll hear a little bit more from Max Hauck. He's a forensics expert and author of the article CSI Reality that appears in the July Scientific American. On last week's podcast, he talked about the article. He had also just returned from a forensics conference and will share some very interesting news about fingerprints that he picked up there. We'll also test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. First, though, a couple a couple of weeks ago, I got email from a podcast listener named James Bajan, and I thought you'd like to meet him. For one thing, he's a physician and the director of the Department of Veterans Affairs and National Center for Patient Safety. Before that, he was an astronaut and flew two shuttle missions. I spoke with Dr. Bajan Sunday morning, a day before the space shuttle discovery made a safe return to Earth. I called him at his home in Northville, Michigan. Dr. Bajan, thanks for talking to us today. Oh, glad to be here. Now, you already had an MD when you became an astronaut. Really, NASA, when they look for astronauts, they look for what I would call people who are jacks of all trades, but master of one. Undergraduate education, I was a mechanical engineer, uh, then went to medical school. I also had some uh, flying experience as well. Uh, ended up at NASA uh, as an astronaut, which was uh, certainly a thrill and a, a rare privilege, to be sure. And was there actually before the first shuttle flight and was there through the initial shuttle flight, was there for the Challenger accident, flew two missions after the, the Challenger, then um, left NASA, ultimately going to the uh, the VA, Department of Veterans Affairs, to uh, develop and, and uh, run a patient safety program. Just uh, tell me briefly about the your, your roles on the two flights that you flew. Sure. On the first one, I actually did a experiment that I proposed where we actually two of them, but one of them was uh, a cure for space motion sickness, which affects about 75% of all rookie astronauts, and uh, I propose to use a treatment that's often used here on the ground but required an injection, and typically with aviation or space flight, uh, pilots or air crew are not given medications because it can have side effects, but I've worked with the flight surgeons uh, that were running the mission uh, from the medical standpoint and said, why don't we try, uh, Phenergan uh, is the trade name, Promethazine. Why don't we use it uh, intramuscularly, even though it usually causes sedation on the ground, and perhaps we could gain some benefit. And they agreed that that would be okay if I wanted to do it with the permission of the affected crew members, and we did. And it worked uh, brilliantly. So let me just ask you a couple more questions about being in space. Number one, and this is this is fairly obvious, but how much fun is it? I think it varies. I, I, I think, I'll tell you, uh, there were parts of the, the mission that were fun, as you would say it's fun. I would say more it's very satisfying. It's very hard work, uh, not sometimes physically, but usually uh, there's tremendous time pressures, tremendous pressure to never have any kind of mistake or hiccup because things are so tightly choreographed. You understand that the resources are so expensive and there won't be another opportunity, maybe ever, for certain experiments if you don't get them done correctly, that uh, you're extremely driven to do that and, and, and absolutely have picture-perfect performance. And it's just the will to, to be successful for you and for the mission, for NASA, for the investigators, that drives you. Now, some of the missions aren't as tightly choreographed. Fortunately or unfortunately, mine were. So there wasn't a lot of time to play around or be looking out the window. In fact, my first mission, I felt like I was locked in a basement for five days. Well, you get a, every once in a while you look out the window and are reminded where you actually were. Oh yeah, I mean I wouldn't look outside almost all day until I was supposed to be sleeping, literally. So I spent 16 hours basically locked in a closet, and that that actually when I was done it felt really disappointing. 
I felt very glad that we achieved all we did, and people were very happy we did stuff like the cure for the space motion sickness. I mean, that was probably a huge advance that nobody even expected we do. So I felt professionally extremely proud. I felt, I felt personally extremely disappointed that here I flew, and you know, who knows if I, if I was going to have a chance to fly again or whatever else. And and really, things what it looked like from space. I go, I don't know. I didn't see it. Yeah, as was working. Now the next one, I had a little bit more chance to see things, and yet we still worked extremely uh, hard because we knew the more data takes that we could take, the better the science would be because you have more replicate uh, replications or trials to do. And even though we could do the minimum requirement, I think many of us felt like it was our duty, our moral duty, to do everything we could to get the answer the questions as best they could be. Years ago, I interviewed a fellow who smelled things for NASA before they would go up in the shuttle. The problem, though, is with that, that your sense of olfaction is different on orbit than it is on Earth. And things that you might find to be a very pleasant uh, scent here on Earth can be absolutely revolting on orbit. For example, molded milk balls. On my first flight, one guy took a zip. He was able to take some stuff from the fresh food locker. He took a Ziploc bag of molded milk balls. And when he opened that, the aroma was absolutely, and I mean literally, nauseating. Wow, that's really interesting. And and we all and everybody said, "What is that stench?" You know, and you couldn't recognize it as molten milk balls. That's the point. It was much different than what you thought was molten milk balls. But we traced it down to him. We opened the bag and you go, "Gosh, that's what it is." And, and we find it. All right, look, you have ten minutes. Eat as many as you want, and we're throwing the rest in the vented trash. <laughs> and that's what we did. How did it basically smell up there after a week in space? Though? No different. It, it, the, the, the activated carbon filter that the uh, that the air circulated through does a very good job. So, I mean, and I can tell you I've been a change-out crew for land because we do many different jobs. So mm-hmm. I've been there where you're the first ones in the module when they land. Right. And they've been there for a number of days with a bunch of people in it. And, you know, your, your thought might be that it would smell like a, a locker room or something. You never were in a locker room that smelled that good. Let me ask you one other thing. In light of your unique background, what's your view of the current shuttle program uh, regarding both safety issues and the overall program? Well, I think think NASA is, you know, doing a fine job, quite frankly. And I think this is another thing that when people, I did both, I was involved in doing both the Challenger and the Columbia investigation. Uh, In fact, I had been assigned to to the... uh, the Challenger flight, and we switched payloads just before that accident. So, I mean, it's certainly uh, my friends were on both both of those flights, so it's certainly a significant event. But we all knew there was a risk, uh, and that we know then that some bad things can happen, and they did. And it's certainly unfortunate, and then we tried to learn from those. I think the culture at NASA generally is pretty good. I, I think if you look at this last mission that just uh, launched uh, less than two weeks ago, uh, there was much made in the press uh, about how Two of the individuals in the, in the process said, uh, this doesn't meet our criteria. We uh, would recommend not to fly. And then the administrator uh, overruled them, you might say. The fact is, if you really look into it and listen to the interviews, for instance, that were on, I think, with NPR, uh, the head of safety, uh, Brian O'Connor, who was a classmate of mine as an astronaut, and he and I flew together. Uh, Brian, I think, gave a very good interview, and very clear, where he said that, yes, this didn't meet certain criteria, but there's always going to be some risk. And I think the way the, uh, direct, the the administrator made the decision is his prerogative and appropriate. But the point is not there's ever zero risk. There's not. There's not in space flight. There's not in medicine. The point is when you make a decision, it should be with full knowledge of what those risks are. You do the risk-benefit ratio and then decide 
am I willing to make that decision? The, uh, you know, as uh, was pointed out by Mr. Griffin, he said, what the decision we're making, we don't believe is putting the crew at, at really any significant additional risk. The, the chance we're taking is if it did do damage, that we might not be able to repair the shuttle and we'd have to basically uh, not be able to recover it successfully in the worst situation. And yet we could bring the crew back on another shuttle. So we weren't putting the crew at risk. And he said, understanding that for the program, it's better to take that economic risk, if you will, than not to fly at all. Does that make sense? Well, as long as the, the crew safety is uh, is assured or as, as assured as possible. Well, right. And that's, that's what the case was. And that's why I think uh, you heard Brian O'Connor, who's safety, uh, uh, head of safety, made the comment that, you know, when his book of safety is both for the, 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 the mission, the system, as the organization, as well as the individuals, he's charged with both. Right. It's not for him to abrogate one of those rules. On the other hand, it is the administrator's job to decide when that's appropriate. And he said, for the fiscal risk, it was worth it. And, and, and personally, I think, from what I know, I wasn't in the middle of that decision. I think the rationale is not necessarily inappropriate. That was a, a panel I was on for NRC, National Research Council, last year, was about how to look at that risk. And not only that, but how to communicate it effectively to not just the legislators, who I think they do a fairly good job doing that, but to the public. Because when there's a crash, the public thinks, well, that shouldn't have happened. And in fact, the question is, if you're running, let's say, a 1% chance of failure, that's one in 100. Right, which is approximately the, the ratio of, of lost uh, missions. That's exactly right. So, I mean, if you look at it on the other hand, you could say NASA's done a very good job in the fact that the loss rate is about what they've always said it would be. Yeah. And that doesn't mean you want to have any particular loss, and you try to learn as all you can and incorporate that, but you can't live in a Cinderella-type world where you believe it never will happen. You know, that's not true, and I think we have to understand that the, the potential loss is one of the costs of exploration. And not that we want to have those. We want to do everything we can do to prevent that. We need to very clearly communicate what those risks are to everybody. Certainly the crew understands that. There's nobody on the crew that doesn't understand flying on a shuttle is a risky endeavor. Right. I mean, everybody, one of the things you do before you fly is you have to go through your will, make sure it's properly executed. That's part of the final couple of weeks before flight. All that stuff's done. There's not many other people, jobs that people engage in where before you do it, you have to sit down and make sure your will's in order. Right. So that that's a sobering experience. Yeah. So, I mean, you have to be, you know, in absolute denial not to understand what that means. We'll have a few more minutes with James Bajan next week about his current work, patient safety. In the meantime, the Veterans Affairs National Center for Patient Safety is at www.patientsafety.gov. We'll be right back. For breaking news about science and technology, visit www.siam.com slash news today. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, Australian paleontologists have found fossils of a killer kangaroo with fangs. Story two, the owner of Dinosaur Adventureland, a creationist theme park in Florida, shut down the park in light of overwhelming scientific evidence that humans and dinosaurs did not, in fact, live together. Story three, providing nutritional information with high school cafeteria lunch choices not only helps students to make better food choices, but also causes students to have higher opinions of the oft-maligned lunch ladies. 
And story four, if an elderly woman loses weight, it can be a warning sign of the later onset of Alzheimer's disease. We'll be back with the answer, but first, Max Hauck is a trace evidence expert and director of the Forensic Science Initiative at West Virginia University. Last week, we talked about his article on CSI science in the July issue of Scientific American. He had also coincidentally just returned from a conference, and I asked him about that. I just got back from the International Association for Identification, or IAI, uh, their annual education uh, symposium. And you were one of the presenters, but I, I assume you also went to some of the other talks? Exactly. And the disciplines that are covered under IAI are uh, fingerprinting, uh, crime scene work, photography, uh, other types of impression evidence like, like shoe prints or tire tracks. And what did you come away with? Anything new that jumped out at you that you thought was really worth having learned about? The In the last few years, uh, there have been several significant challenges to fingerprints in court uh, as to whether fingerprinting is, in fact, a science. Uh, are all fingerprints unique? Well, that's really interesting. Before you go further, because fingerprints, I mean, we all grew up hearing that these that fingerprints are absolutely unique and, and a fingerprint at a crime scene would be ironclad evidence. And you, you, you hit, you just hit on the exact nature of the issue. Fingerprints, most everybody would argue those, in fact, are unique. It's the latent or patent prints. Latent prints are the ones not immediately visible. Patent prints are the ones that are visible, say, in paint or blood or some other material at a crime scene. That's a transfer of, in, of that rigid detail, of that information, to another surface. It's not the question of whether fingerprints themselves are unique. It's can you then say that those transferred patterns are, in fact, unique to one and only one source. Aha, uh-huh, because the entire fingerprint is not going to necessarily be there in perfect form? Well, that and think of it in terms of, of uh, language. There are translation issues. Uh, the finger, how much pressure was used? What's the, how smooth was the, under, the underlying surface? Uh, was there twisting or torsion mm-hmm. involved? Is, is it distorted? Is it blurred? So all of those issues go into how um, accurately that fingerprint got transferred. Really, it's the, it's the first time that, that this field has had that much um, attention paid to it in, in terms of, of research at such a fundamental level. What has driven the uh, the quest for more detail about fingerprints? Well, it's the, the, the legal challenges. Uh, uh, those are at the heart of it. Uh, but it's an issue of admissibility. Uh, for evidence to be admissible in court, it has to uh, have uh, value uh, to the one side or the other, prosecution or the defense. Um, but it also has to meet some other uh, some other requirements. Those requirements uh, changed a number of years ago with uh, a series of of uh, Supreme Court cases. Uh, the one which most everybody refers to as Daubert, D-A-U-B-E-R-T, Daubert versus Merrill Dow. Um, which set out criteria for what constituted scientific evidence. That's been translated to the criminal side. Delbert was a civil case. And those have been uh, picked up and are now being applied to uh, many of the forensic sciences. So it's these new requirements for what constitutes science in a legal context that is now driving people back to some pretty fundamental research. So overall, is this a good thing or a bad thing that we're that we're putting fingerprints under this kind of scrutiny? 
overall, I think it's good. Um, I think it's good for a couple of reasons. One, uh, the forensic sciences historically, uh, they started out in science and then they became adopted as techniques with law enforcement agencies. Um, and that sort of, you'll excuse the pun, arrested their development. Um, because the law and law enforcement are about certainty and science isn't always. Um, and so there wasn't much development. Uh, there were additions and, and the field did progress, but not like it would as if it were, say, biology or chemistry or, or physics. I've been doing some, some reading on this, and in fact, biology and chemistry uh, went through a phase where they were considered only applied sciences and not real worthy of, of real research. And I think we're beginning to see that in these older disciplines in forensic science where we're now getting back to a research mindset and we're asking some of these fundamental questions, uh, which I think is excellent. I think it's excellent, um, not only for the field as a science, but obviously it's going to provide us with uh, a, a better justice. Well, thanks very much, Professor Huck. I appreciate your time. Sure thing, Steve. No problem. Max Hock's article called CSI Reality is in the July issue of Scientific American and on our website, www.siam.com. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, fanged killer kangaroos once terrorized the Australian outback. Story two, the owner of Dinosaur Adventureland shut down the park because of scientific evidence that humans and dinosaurs never coexisted. Story three, giving kids nutritional information along with their cafeteria lunch also upped the image of the cafeteria staff in this student's eyes. And story four, weight loss in an elderly woman can be a warning sign of Alzheimer's disease. Time's up. Story four is true. Weight loss in elderly women can be a warning sign of Alzheimer's. That's according to research from the Mayo Clinic. Now, this doesn't mean that older women who diet are increasing their odds of developing Alzheimer's. Rather, it means that older women who suddenly start losing weight may be getting thinner because Alzheimer's in its very earliest stages may be interfering with taste or smell or even the sense of being full. Story three is true. Providing nutritional information with high school cafeteria lunch choices not only helps students to make better food choices, but also improves the student's satisfaction with school lunch programs and dining room staff, according to a Penn State study. However, the additional information did not improve opinions about ambiance or cost. And story one is true. Paleontologists in Australia found fossils of a meat-eating kangaroo with fangs that would have sliced through flesh and bone. Another fossil is of a kangaroo with long forelimbs that would have galloped rather than hopped. Kind of takes away the whole meaning of kangaroodom for us, doesn't it? The ancient Aussies lived at least 10 million years ago. All of which means that the story about dinosaur adventure land closing because scientific evidence shows that humans and dinosaurs never palled around together is totally bogus. Because what's true is that the park, which was promoted as the place where dinosaurs and the Bible meet, the park closed because owner Kent Hovind never got building permits for the structures in the park, and because last week Hovind was arrested on 58 federal charges, ranging from failure to pay employee taxes, threatening investigators, and evasion of bank reporting requirements. Hovind runs the Creation Science Evangelism Ministry. The Pensacola News Journal newspaper reports that members of the Creation Science Evangelism Group said that building permits violated their, quote, deeply held, and quote, religious beliefs. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm John Rennie, editor-in-chief of Scientific American. Our magazine is now available in a digital edition. 
Not only does your Scientific American digital subscription include the full contents of every new printed issue, it also entitles you to access our digital archives from 1993 to the present. For more information, visit www.siamdigital.com. That's it for this edition of the Scientific American Podcast. Our email address is podcast at siam.com. And also remember that science news is updated daily on the Scientific American website, www.siam.com. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.